What a gift it is to have the opportunity to honor fathers and to honor father figures. And Fathers in the Field is a great ministry that, that invites men of God to be a father figure for one who, who is needing that and needing to have the opportunity to see what a man of God is really like. And so if you want more information about this great ministry, we did want to highlight it for you today so you could see about it and hear about it, but you can get some more info at the, the table that's set up in the lobby. We'd encourage you to stop by and just see how you could support Fathers in the Field or how you could be involved in this great ministry. It is a privilege to say Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room, to all those who are joining us online from the lake or the beach or wherever you are. We are so grateful to share this time together on Father's Day, and I do want to have a specific word of prayer over the fathers in the room today, but I also want to pray specifically for our community. There is no way we could just move forward in this service without acknowledging the heartbreak that we feel based on the tragic events and the evil that we've seen in our community this very week, and so I want to ask you to just join me in a posture of prayer right now. Let's, let's thank God for the privilege of this day, but let's also remember that there are brothers and sisters right now gathering for worship at St. Stephen's that have walked through the unthinkable, and we've seen the unthinkable in our community, and we need to seek the Heavenly Father and ask Him to guide us in this towards healing, towards comfort, towards provision, towards all that is needed in the midst of this brokenness. So would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to call you Father. It is a privilege to come before you as sons and daughters, knowing that in all things you hear our prayers, you hear our cries, you know our hearts, you know what we need. Father, on this Father's Day, we do thank you for the fathers that are here with us, for the men of God that are leading their families courageously. We praise you for their faith and their influence and their impact. Lord, we also recognize that on a Father's Day, there are the reminders for many of, of things that have not been or things that have not gone the way they had hoped or planned or hurts and wounds where there was an absent father. Father, I just pray right now that you, in your power and in your spirit, would step into those places of pain and hurt and provide healing and comfort and strength. And we recognize, Lord, that in our own community there has been tremendous hurt this week. Father, we are heartbroken over what we have seen and heard and read about that took place at St. Stephen's Church. We grieve with those who are grieving, Lord. We pray your comfort. We pray your peace, Lord. We pray your healing. And we pray that you would draw near to the brokenhearted as you promised to do. Father, this church and those who have lost a loved one this week, they, they certainly need the comfort of the Father, the all-sufficient grace and mercy that only the Heavenly Father can provide. Please, Lord, draw near. Jesus, we need you. And we are reminded of the brokenness of this world. We are reminded of the evil of sin.
And we need you. Lord God, we need you. So we pray your comfort. We pray your provision. We pray your wisdom, Lord God, as we seek you now through the proclamation of your word. Guide us on this Father's Day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with me as we read from the word of God. And if you need a Bible today, there are Bibles spread out all over the room. Grab one, if you will, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It is the, the gospel of Matthew, often called the written account of one of the disciples, Matthew, telling us about the ministry of Jesus and what took place from an eyewitness account. In Matthew chapter 6, we are stepping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus preached that we have recorded in Scripture. It's the longest sermon of Jesus recorded in the Scripture. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And right in the middle of this sermon, Jesus begins to teach on prayer. And as he teaches on prayer, he teaches on forgiveness and the power of forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A very challenging statement of Jesus, a very sobering statement of Jesus, even in light of the events of this week in our own community, and even in light of what many of us have walked through in the hurt and the pain that we've experienced at the hands of others. What do we do with these words? Let's ask the Lord to guide us now. Would you pray with me again? Father, as we stand before you, and as we now turn our attention to the Holy Scripture, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us to see what we need to see. As we stand on the foundation of your word, we are challenged by what your word says. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would show us what we need to see in the midst of this challenging statement. Lord, show us what our hearts need to receive. And I pray, Lord God, that you would draw us into your word, that you would do work in us through your word in the power of your spirit. And I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified on this day. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing with me. And as we turn our attention to this statement of Jesus in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, we are turning our attention to a very challenging statement of Jesus. What are we supposed to do with this when we've been hurt by another? If you forgive another, you will be forgiven. If you do not forgive another their trespasses, neither will the heavenly Father forgive you. That's a troubling statement when we're trying to navigate what to do with pain and hurt and wounds. 
You may be here today and the, the wounds of, of the pain that you've experienced at the hands of another, they're still very open, even festering. What do you do with a statement like this from Jesus? If you forgive another, you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. That's troubling. But even more so, at a doctrinal level, this statement at first glance appears troubling. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel says, there is nothing you or I can do to earn the gift of salvation. It is by grace through faith alone that you can be saved. It is not of your own doing. It's not a result of works that any man may boast. There is nothing you or I can do to earn the forgiveness of God, according to the gospel. But it appears like Jesus is saying, actually, you must do something if you will be saved. You must do something if you'll be forgiven. What is this all about? How are we to take this statement of Jesus that is so challenging and, and hold it up in, in light of the gospel, in light of what the, the scripture teaches about what it means to be saved and forgiven of our sins? What Jesus, are you telling us it's about works? Are you telling us it's about something that, that we have to do, that forgiveness is based on the way we respond to other people? What is this all about? These are huge questions. Questions we must deal with. And we must deal with these questions specifically in our context because there are many people in our city here in Birmingham, many people in churches here in Birmingham, many people in this church that are looking to religion and religious works to save them. There are many that are trying to live a good life, trying to do the right thing so that they can be saved based on the way that they are living. There are many in this community right now and in this church right now who are trying to prove that they are worthy of being forgiven by God. Many that are looking to religious rituals and religious practices to somehow make them worthy of the love of God. So what do we do with Matthew 6, 14 and 15? Well, as we seek to understand the good news of the gospel and seek to make sense of this statement of Jesus, I want us to walk through the Lord's Prayer this morning. Because the Lord's Prayer, as it's often called, the, the, the instructional prayer, if you will, that Jesus teaches his disciples and those who are listening at the Sea of Galilee when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer is what immediately precedes what we've just read in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. The Lord's Prayer, perhaps the most famous prayer in all of the Bible, a prayer that many people, even who are not in the church, have heard or are familiar with, right? 
I mean, the Lord's Prayer, this is the prayer that, that, that movies quote when, when someone is trying to get God on their side, right? This is the prayer that is prayed in locker rooms all over the country as athletic teams are hoping that God will bless them on the field. When I was a high school football player, our team said the Lord's Prayer every Friday night. It was the last thing we did after warm-ups before we went back out on the field to storm the field for the game. We hit our knees in the locker room and we prayed the Lord's Prayer. And this was a public high school. And most of the dudes on my team, they weren't trying to follow Jesus, but they wanted a good luck charm. They wanted God's blessing on their performance on the field. And so we all recited the Lord's Prayer. And you know, we never even stopped to think about what if the other team in the other locker room is saying the same thing right now? How's God going to decide which one he's going to bless? If this is all about some magic prayer to get God's blessing, how's he going to decide? What are we supposed to do with the Lord's Prayer? A very familiar prayer. What I've titled this sermon is an often neglected prayer, a prayer that many people recite, but a prayer that many people do not understand at all. It's oftentimes not a personal prayer, but more of a religious ritual. Before we even consider the Lord's Prayer, let's go back just a few more verses. Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus teaches on prayer, he actually gives a warning before he teaches the model prayer. And he says, don't, don't just go into prayer as if it's some empty religious ritual. Don't go into prayer as if you're just trying to get God on your side or you just need a little good luck charm. Look at what he says, Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. When you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, Jesus says. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What's this all about? Well, the Gentiles, those who are not religious Jews, those who are living very different lifestyles than the Jews, they also prayed even though they weren't religious Jews. But they prayed in a very different way than the religious Jews. They prayed to many different gods. And they would pray to these different gods based on what they needed or wanted in that particular circumstance. And so they would recite a prayer to a specific God, hoping that that specific God would bless them for saying the right words and saying it at the right time in the right way. And Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. Don't, don't act like you're going before God to force his hand. Don't act like you can say some magic spell and the genie will come out of the bottle. Don't act like that you can say the right thing and you're going to get everything you want from God. That's, that's actually not prayer at all. That's just a, a selfish Christmas list. No, Jesus is saying don't, don't pray like that don't go through empty motions and just think that somehow, some way, you might can force the hand of God to be on your side, even as your heart is far from Him. No, don't pray like that. 
God sees your heart. God knows what you need. So when you pray, this is what Jesus begins to teach, when you pray, know that prayer is about lining your heart up with the heart of God. You're not trying to manipulate the heart of God. You're trying to get your heart to be manipulated to his way and his will. You're not trying to force the hand of God. You're trying to get your heart in line with the hand of God. When you pray, you're to pray that your heart would begin to reflect the heart of God. Jesus is teaching us to pray from a posture of humility and a posture of surrender before God that our heart would be in alignment with his. And he then says, let me teach you this this model prayer, if you will, to, to show you who God is and to show you who you are so that you can see how much you need God and how much you need to be in line with his heart. So this is where we step into the Lord's Prayer. Don't pray empty words. Pray from the heart that your heart would be in line with God. Matthew 6, 9, it says this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying, let's remember who God is when we pray. God, the perfect Father is inviting us to call on him as sons and daughters of the king. He is sovereign and he is reigning on high in heaven. Our father in heaven, we can come before him. What an amazing invitation. And when we come before our father in heaven and when we pray to our father who is sovereign and reigning over all let us be reminded in our hearts of the holiness of our god that he is other than us holy and righteous hallowed be your name we're not asking god to make his name holy we're acknowledging that god's name is holy and we're praying that our hearts would cry out God in heaven is holy, that our heart would say, hallowed be your name, that this would be a personal petition that God would be seen as holy in our lives, that we would submit to his will and his way and would view him and honor him as holy. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, remember Jesus is teaching us that prayer is about aligning our hearts with the heart of God, that our lives might be transformed by him. As he says, pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please don't miss this, church. God does not need us to pray that the will of God will be done because there's some threat that it might not be done. The will of God is going to be done. He's God. So we're praying that our lives would get in line with his will, that our hearts would be in alignment with the will of God, that our hearts would break for the things that God's heart breaks for, and that our lives would be used for the advancement of the kingdom here on earth. 
For you see, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the disciples of Jesus, we are to be passionate about the kingdom of God. But listen, listen, this is so important. Jesus knows, Jesus knows as he's teaching us to pray. We need to pray, your kingdom come. Why? Because we often live, my kingdom come. We often live wanting to build our teeny tiny little sandcastle kingdom. And even in the church we do this. We look at other churches and we want to build our church. We want to build our kingdom here. And we forget that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than one people, one church, one look, one style. We forget about the kingdom of God altogether. And you say, no, may you pray that your heart would be about the kingdom of God. That's what God is excited about. May you pray that you would be a people that advance the kingdom of God over and above any effort or attempt to build your own little kingdom. Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And doesn't this reveal, think about this, if we're honest and we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, doesn't this reveal in our own hearts the things that are often at odds with the will of God and the kingdom of God advancing through us? Remember, this is a prayer of surrender, a prayer of aligning our heart with the heart of God. As I'm praying, God, your will be done, your kingdom come, I'm actually praying that anything that is in my life that is fighting against the will of God for my life would be revealed. Anything in my life that has taken priority over the kingdom of God would be revealed. If I'm holding on to pride or jealousy, if I'm holding on to self-righteousness or fear or control, or if I'm holding on to religious effort where the focus is more on me and what I want than it is on the gospel of grace and the advancement of the kingdom of God, God, may it be revealed so that it can be laid before your throne. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love this quote from Paul David Tripp. He says, the prayer that Christ taught us to pray is the antidote to sin. Since sin starts with the heart, it is only when my heart desires God's will more than it desires my will that I'll live for the moral gospel boundaries that God has set for me. And it is only God's grace that can produce this kind of heart. Thy kingdom come are words of surrender, words of protection, words of grace that can only be prayed by those who have been delivered by the Redeemer from the kingdom that always leads to destruction and death, the kingdom of self. What kingdom are we living for? Thy kingdom come or my kingdom come? What would the Lord reveal if we honestly prayed this prayer that needs to be laid before him? The second part of this prayer then 
Jesus is teaching us the good news. He's bringing us back to the gospel. He's showing us our need for God and showing us what God has done. This part of the prayer really is a confession of the provision of God. Matthew 6, 11 through 13, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These words are so beautiful and so powerful because they remind us of the good news of the gospel. Jesus is saying, pray that your heart would be centered on the good news of the gospel. And as you pray, pray that you would be able to see your daily need for the grace of God and declare your dependence on him for new morning mercies. To to pray for daily bread is to say, this day, this breath is in the hands of God. I can't manufacture it on my own. I'm not the one who put breath in my lungs. God, you did. Thank you for this daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread is to acknowledge our dependence on God for this day, to be reminded of his provision, to be reminded of what he has done. To then pray, Lord, help me to live in light of the forgiveness that you have offered to me at the cross. For when I'm living in light of what I have been forgiven, I can much more quickly turn and forgive those who have wronged me in light of what I've received from you. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Lord, help me to look to the cross daily so that I can see how prone I am to wander. I I can see the, the, the sin that lurks in my own heart that so quickly can lead me astray. And I can see the evil around me for what it is. Lord, help me to see sin clearly. And lead me not into temptation. Deliver us from evil, for I will be far more inclined to live for the glory of God when I am reminded daily of the beauty of the cross. I will be more inclined to live for the glory of God and the good of others when I am daily aware of my need for the grace of God. This beautiful prayer of Jesus, teaching us how to pray, to be reminded of who God is and who we are and how much we need him. But then this leads us right back to where we started this morning. Verses 14 and 15, if forgiveness is a gift of grace, then what in the world is Jesus talking about in verses 14 and 15? If we can't earn the forgiveness that we need from God, if we can't prove our worth by by the way we respond to others, then, then what in the world is Jesus talking about in verse 14 and 15? Look at it again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What is this about? First, let me turn our attention to a great quote from theologian John Stott. It's very appropriate for 
our message here today. He writes this, our Lord certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives, listen to this, God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. But if on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offense of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Isn't it far easier to pay more attention to the sin of others than it is to acknowledge your own sin? Isn't it far easier to hone in on, to be laser focused on, the wrongs that have been committed against you than it is to acknowledge the daily ongoing sin in our life against a holy God. We treat our sin as if it's no big deal many times while very quickly holding others' sin against us as if it's the most serious offense in the history of the world. Think about when someone cuts you off in traffic. Today, as you're hungry and you're leaving for lunch, and that jerk Christian in the Shades Mountain parking lot wouldn't let you in the line. What is wrong with them? Their heart is so wicked, right? But if you're in that line and you don't let anybody in, you've got a really good reason for it, don't you? Tomorrow you're driving down the road and some moron cuts in front of you, almost runs you off the road, and you go, what a sinner! I should run you off the road right now! How dare you cut me off like that? But then when you're in a hurry and you've got a very important appointment to make it to, and you're going to be in trouble if you're running late, no problem cutting people off. Hey, my motives are pure. If only you know my heart, you'll know why I need to cut you off right now. Hey, brother. Hey, brother, I'm in a hurry. We often have an exaggerated view of what others have done to us as we minimize our own sin. And so the word of God is reminding us here through this beautiful sermon of Jesus if you truly understand all that's been forgiven in your life, you will be very inclined to forgive the wrongs committed against you. If you could see the ledger of debt that you and I have against a holy God, the debt that we owe, if we could see it like just running nonstop on a screen in front of our eyes, it would be staggering. And Jesus is saying, when you realize what you've been forgiven, that that debt has been taken to the cross, you can be far more inclined 
to take the debt that others have committed against you and put it on the cross. If you forgive others their trespasses, your trespasses will be forgiven. It shows the evidence of the grace of God received, right? But on the contrary, Jesus says, if you do not forgive, neither will your trespasses be forgiven by the Father. Why? Because while forgiving another shows the evidence or the fruit of grace, unforgiveness or bitterness, it shows the evidence or the fruit of sin. If we refuse to forgive, we are showing that sin is reigning in our hearts. An unforgiving spirit reveals that we actually think we are higher than God. God who is willing to send his only son to the cross for your sin and and for mine. God who has been offended over and 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 over again by our sin and yet chooses not to hold that against us but cancels the debt at the cross and then we feel like for some reason we have the right to hold on to that debt of another. It's revealing the fruit of sin. D.A. Carson writes this, there is no forgiveness for the one who does not forgive. How could it be otherwise? His unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that he has never repented. It is of the essence of the Christian way to walk in self-denial. Whoever sees himself and his own life as central to meaningful existence loses everything. But whoever takes up his cross and follows Jesus and loses his life actually finds it. I love what Carson has done here in talking about forgiveness and connecting it back to the call or the invitation of following Jesus that Jesus lays before his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, and 25. You, you may be familiar with this call. This is foundational to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus, as Carson so beautifully unpacks, is to deny self, to let self die, and to follow Jesus and his life and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness of our sins. To follow Jesus is to die to self. To forgive is to die to self. Again, the debt that I owe was put on the cross. That's the good news that I receive when I trust the good news of the gospel. When I trust my life to Christ, I am saying, Lord Jesus, I need you to cancel the debt because I can't cancel the debt. 
I need you to save me because I can't save myself. Lord Jesus, I need you because I cannot fix this. Only you can save me. Only you can cancel the debt through the cross of Christ. To forgive is to take the debt that we feel we are owed and to put it on the cross with the debt we owe. This is why Jesus says, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. Because as you forgive others, you are demonstrating that you understand the gift of the gospel. As you forgive others, you are demonstrating that that you have acknowledged your need for the Savior, that you have trusted in what Christ alone can provide through the cross and the power of his resurrection. But if you refuse to forgive others, you are actually showing either you don't understand forgiveness at all or you don't understand what Jesus Christ has done for you. So how could you be forgiven if you don't receive the forgiveness of God? And if you have received the forgiveness of God, It will be so overwhelming in your life in the grace of God that you will then be able to turn and forgive the one who has wronged you. If you hold on to unforgiveness and hold on to bitterness and try and control those who have hurt you, you will lose your life. But if you open your hands knowing what you have been forgiven, receiving the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and forgiving those who have wronged you, you will find true life. So can we invite the model prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, to be a very personal prayer in our lives today? Can we invite the Lord's Prayer to do some work in us as we think about those who've wronged us or the ways perhaps that we're building our own kingdom instead of living for the kingdom of God? Can we we invite the Lord's Prayer to come do some work in our life as it relates to acknowledging our need for Jesus? I wanna ask you to pray this prayer with me that you've probably prayed many times in many different settings. And let's pray it as a personal prayer before the Lord, that our hearts would be in alignment with the heart of God. Use Matthew 6 as your God, and let's go before the Lord and pray the Lord's prayer that Jesus taught us. Pray with me. Close your eyes and bow your heads. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
forever. God, we need you. We need you. We need to be reminded of who you are and what you have done. God, we need your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And God, I pray that your grace and mercy and forgiveness, the good news of the gospel, would wash over us with such tremendous power and take root in our lives in such a significant way that we would be a people who can turn and forgive. That we would be a people that even when it doesn't make sense on paper could turn and release another from the debt that they owe in light of the incredible gift that we have received through our debt being paid at the cross. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. I pray, Lord God, that you would set some captives free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.